As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Michael Carlin's novel Winning Streak. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll kiss a few bucks goodbye. Pick up Winning Streak wherever you buy books. Enjoy the show. My name is Mike Carlin, and I'm a writer of words and teller of tales who's constantly looking to improve what he does. So I'm on a mission to interview other writers, learn from them, and hopefully have a few laughs along the way. Surely you can't be serious. Oh, I'm serious. So listen in as your favorite writers share their stories with me on Uncorking a Story. Well, welcome everybody to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm so pleased to share with you my interview with New York Times bestselling author Jane Green, whose latest book, The Sunshine Sisters, is available wherever books are sold. Before I get to the discussion, though, um, I do want to reflect on something that was inspired, some thoughts that I have that were inspired by our discussion. And... Um, you know, I don't know if you're into music the way I'm into music. I, I love music. I love all different types of music, uh, different genres, um, country. I love classic rock, of course, uh, 80s, early 80s hip hop. Um, some of the new stuff is okay, but I, I do like some of that early 80s, uh, 80s stuff. Um, but one of the genres that I really love, uh, really guitar driven, is 80s hair metal. And, I mean, that is much to the disdain of anybody who's in a car with me when I have control of the radio. Um, but I love it. It's what I grew up listening to. Um, I mean, I know it's cheesy, okay, uh, very cheesy at times. Um, but I don't care because I love the music. Um, but I can listen to, like, the guitar masters of that era. And these are guys like Eddie Van Halen, um, of course, right? I mean, you can't have a list of guitar players and <laughs> not include Eddie Van Halen on it. Uh, George Lynch, who played with Dawkins, Steve Vai, who's uh, just a complete virtuoso. A guy named Vito Brada was in a, a band called White Lion. Um, very kind of cheesy songs, but his guitar playing really stood out, especially from the guys who were really big in, in the later part of the 80s. He just, uh, he, he was just a master. Um, anyway, why, why am I talking about all this hair metal stuff? Or as I like to call it, E Pluribus Aquinetus. Um, you know, I can tell by um, hearing and listening to the music who's actually playing. So the same guy could play the same solo, but they all have different signatures to them. And, and my ear can actually pick up who's playing based on kind of how they put little phrases together or, or their techniques. So why am I going on about uh, hair metal guitar players? Well, because just as guitar players have the same kind of building blocks to work with, and think of those building blocks as notes, um, writers also have the same building blocks to work with. And in our case, it's vocabulary. Um, Jane Green, who you're about to hear from in a minute, 
really is a true master of the craft. She can put words together in such a way that the reader not only sees the story as they're reading it, but they feel the emotions of her carefully crafted characters as the story goes on. Um, her books, in my mind, are really, truly works of art. So just as a guitar player uh, has the same notes to work with, um, it's how they put those notes together, how they play those notes, that sets them apart. And, you know, you can actually hear the differences between players. So, writers, same thing. Um, we all have the same words to work with. Now, some of us are better at using them than others. Um, but uh, it's really how we put them together that kind of separates um, good writers from, let's say, great writers and masters. And Jane Green is somebody who I would put into that latter category. So, without any further <laughs> delays on my part, without any more lectures on uh, hair metal, which I could go on for days uh, talking about, here is my interview with the wonderfully talented Jane Green. So I am, as you have probably guessed, from England. I'm from London. Um, and I'm, I'm one of these rare people who I'm a true Londoner because I, I often run into people here who are English. And, and I say, where are you from? And they say, London. I get very excited. Um, and then I go, well, where? Where in London? And they say Guildford. They always say somewhere that's just on the outskirts. And so it's like, it's like saying you're from New York and a Manhattanite saying, oh, where? Expecting Upper East Side or, or downtown. And, and somebody says, Great Neck. It's just it's not, quite, <laughs> it's not quite the same thing. Right. So, yeah, I'm a Londoner, born and bred. Born and bred. Now, it was fascinating. I know you're also a professionally trained um, chef. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Londoners, uh, not initially known for their cuisine. Um, so, I'm going to interrupt you there, and I'm going to say, don't ever say that out loud, because actually, the food in England over the past 15 years, particularly in London, has become extraordinary with some of the best chefs in the world. So um, so you don't want to say that the food in England is bad or that everybody has bad teeth because then you're just <laughs> you're proving to us that you haven't been there for a very long time. Which actually is true. It's actually probably been about 15 years since I have been there. Um, That's exactly, and that makes perfect sense because it really, it has exploded over there. And we have unbelievable chefs there, incredible talent, um, that is is now spilling over into the rest of the world. Gordon Ramsay and Ottolenghi and and these just extraordinary chefs and the food is really wonderful there. So when you when you were growing up in London, what was it was it your dream to be a writer? Did you did you always know that you you know had a knack for for this as a career, or were you thinking about some other things? You know, what was young? What did young Jane want to be when she grew up? Well, young Jane always thought she was going to be some kind of an artist. Um, and I'm not sure that I ever quite knew how, what form it would take. I, I, you know, for a while I thought maybe graphic design and then I thought maybe fashion design, and, but art was my thing. Um, however, I truly believe that the reason I became a writer is because I was a reader. And, and the place where I was happiest as a child. And I was a very shy, I was incredibly shy, very introverted. And the place that I found my comfort and my peace was within the pages of books. So that was, that was where you'd always find me with my nose buried in books. And, and I was a voracious, voracious reader. And I'm, I'm quite certain that's how I fell into writing. You know, it's, it's interesting because when I, uh, when I talk to authors, I, I always say, I always usually end a conversation with, uh, you know, g give me some advice um, either for your younger self or to somebody who, who really wants to desire to become a writer. One of the things that always makes the list is read all you can, um, yeah. devour books, you know, find, find what you love to read. Um, and, and I don't want to say borrow with pride, but just be inspired and learn from, you know, learn from the people who are having a career doing it. Yeah. And I, cause I think what happens is if you are a huge reader, it somehow just seeps into your DNA. You, 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 it's, it's almost a process of osmosis. You don't, I've never 
studied creative writing, and I'm sure some of my critics would say, well, we can tell. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've just always read, and somehow you, you, you have a, an inherent understanding then of what, what makes a story. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it's almost like, um, you know, I, and I agree. It, it's, I know people who have gone out and they've gotten, you know, their, their master's in, in fine arts degrees of, of uh, you know, to, to, in creative writing. Um, but there's really no substitute for, you know, learning and, and just reading um, and just being well read. I think it's it's yeah. critical to, uh, to to the craft. And also writing. You know, I, I have a lot of people who who ask my opinion on various courses and conferences, and and I I am a firm believer in 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 not doing that, but writing. How you learn is by writing and, and nothing will teach you in the way that writing does. And and I think you can very easily get stuck on that sort of treadmill of one class after another class after another after another without ever actually just stopping and writing. And I, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy you just used the word treadmill um, because I think it's a great example. My wife uh, is an a- avid runner. She spends probably three to four hours a day on the treadmill running, oh my God. Um, which, you know, look, I, I like to run. I do it a few days a week, but she's, you know, that that's her thing. But I think of, and if she misses a day of, of running, it's not a good thing for her. Like she's yeah. her, her whole attitude is different for me. I have the similar thing with writing. If I don't write every day and if I don't exercise that muscle, the way my wife exercises her, you know, quads and you know, all those other muscles, muscles in the leg, um, then I feel a little different, a little weird. Like I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. And then I get a little bit weaker uh, around it. It's just, it's just like a, a muscle you've got to flex, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that's exactly, it. I do sometimes say writing is a muscle. It needs to be exercised every day. But I also think we're all, all of us creative people tend to be crazy in our own unique ways. And we have to find a way to let that craziness out so we can sort of put our game face on for the rest of the world. And in your wife's case, it's the treadmill. And in your case, as it is in mine, it's writing. And I, I definitely, you know, sometimes my days are really hard and sometimes the writing is incredibly difficult and I, I think I can't do it. And yet the having written is amazing. So, so however hard or, or easy my day is, ultimately it's just getting to that point of having written because that's when I can breathe and go about the rest of my life. I, I need to have got those words on the page before I can, I can sort of focus and quiet the, the, the crazy, the crazy mind. The, what do they call the Buddhists call it monkey mind? <laughs> I, I definitely need to, writing is my way of, of stilling the monkey mind so I can go about the rest of my life. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> you talk about the interesting things. I, you ever have a situation where, where you get an idea, but you've got no way of writing it down? Um, this happens to me when I'm driving. So I have, we have three kids. They're uh, triplets. They're 16 years old. So um, we're almost at the point where they can drive themselves places, but I'm, you know, my wife and I, we we both are basically part-time taxi drivers. Yeah. Um, but I often have ideas that hit me when I'm driving. Like that's, that's when it happens. So, um, (laughs) my daughter, I drive, drive her crazy. So we're driving home from, from her hockey practice last night. And I say, Maggie, I, I need you to text me a few things. Can you do that for me? And I'll start giving her phrases, and she, she'll be like, Dad, I, I don't want to know what's going on in your head right now. But uh, it's, um, but that's part of it, too. It's like I need to get those ideas out because uh, they'll, they'll leave me if I, don't, if I don't remember them. And I'm interested in, in you talking about how that happens in cars because I, I wonder if that's true for a lot of people. I have the same thing. For me, it's, it's trains and planes and cars, but mostly on my own. I do this really bizarre thing where I, I talk out loud. I talk to myself out loud and I'll talk through my books and scenes and characters. And some of my greatest ideas come in the car. Um, but I'm so often on my own. I, I'll just pull over and 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 you know write, make a note in my phone. <laughs> um, but there is something about that that 
ambient noise and almost, I, I don't know, it must actually have an effect on the brain because I definitely come up with, with all my ideas in those situations. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those road activities where you really can't be doing much else when you're driving, or at least you shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, there's the background noise, there's the hum of the road, there's the monotony of whatever's in front of you. And then, you know, you let your mind relax a little bit. And to me, that's when it starts happening. If I'm, if I'm trying to like force an idea out, it'll never happen. Yeah. But, you know, in, in the car, it, it sometimes does. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So you wanted to be an artist um, and you, you turned to writing. You were an avid reader. When did when did it become a career for you? When did you know, when did you know that you could actually make a living writing versus, you know, doing doing something else? Well, I, I first of all, made a living as a journalist. So when I left university, I. I fell into journalism um, and that was really, you know, I had a, a job and in marketing and I had a boss who said to me one day, you know, you, you can really write. Um, I, my girlfriend works on a magazine called Just 17 and I think you should talk to her and see if you can do some writing for them. And that's how I started. And then I went on to work for the national newspapers and I ultimately became a feature writer. And when I was about 27, my, my one of my closest childhood friends suddenly announced that she had written a book and she was an art historian. We, we both shared a love of reading, actually. She was very much my book friend. We'd always swap books and, and recommend to each other. Um, and she announced she'd written a book. And I said, well, yeah, that's lovely. And then a few weeks later, her next call was, I've got a publishing deal. And I remember thinking, oh, hang on a minute, I'm the writer. You know, there I was, a journalist, writing features for a national newspaper in England, thinking, well, if she can do it, then then I can do it. And I very naively left my job and I gave myself three months to write a novel and get a publishing deal. A whole <laughs> now, three months? Um, I know, a whole three <laughs> months. Um, and the extraordinary thing is that the first, well, the first agent I wrote to wrote back, somebody wrote back from the company saying, um, your, your work is frankly unpublishable. And I later discovered it was, um, the assistant to the agent I had written to. And I actually ran into her at a party. Um, and she left the industry soon afterwards. So I think it's a very good thing because that first book ended up actually garnering a, a bidding war from, from nine publishers. Um, and signing a, a record deal and going straight onto the bestseller list. Um, and that was uh, straight talking. That was straight talking. That was in the UK, and that was in nineteen ninety eight. I think it came out. Um, yeah, twenty years ago. I mean, I need to just digest that for a second because I, I mean, I, I hear a lot of stories. I hear like a couple of different sort of narratives when I talk to authors. One is. I wrote seven books, and it was only the eighth one that I did that actually, you know, an agent got interested in or, a, you know, a publisher was interested in. And then there were these people I talked to who said, yeah, my first book uh, goes to a bidding war, or I actually sold it directly to a publisher, and I had to get an agent later um, to actually work out the contract. So it, it seems like you're more in that kind of ladder. Yeah, ladder I'm, I'm the person that everybody hates because I really – I, I have been enormously charmed, um, you know, from the beginning. And actually, I still find it amazing that 20 years later, I'm still here. And not only am I still here, I'm, I, I still have, you know, I've got 17 New York Times bestsellers to my name. And, and it's amazing. I mean, I can't actually believe it. Um, a lot of the time. And, and I know. Oh, hold on. I want to say I'm going to I'm going to add something. to Please that. add. I also want to say. That I work so hard. You know, nobody gets handed this on a plate. I work so hard. Well, you know, I was going to add and just say, look, there is probably tempting for other people to say, well, she just got lucky. But, you know, nothing happens overnight. There are no overnight success stories. I mean, whether you're talking, you know, books, whether you're talking acting, you know, whether you're talking music, you know, you too didn't just all of a sudden start playing Madison Square Garden their first year out of the gate. You know, there's a lot of clubs and, and you know. So, but what what that tells me, though, is that that there's just a tremendous amount of talent there, Jane. I mean, that it's it's not just, it's not luck. It is talent and perseverance 
um, and, and grit. Well, I, I have that thing that many of us creative people have that they they call imposter syndrome, which is, you know, for that I I just feel like they've made a terrible mistake. And that that one day, you know, with my next book, they're going to read it and think, oh, oh, she's really not very good. Why didn't we see this before? She's just been really, really lucky. Um, however, I have to say, I, I had a thing last year where I was working on a project and, and we were looking for writers in my vein. And we put out a bunch of ads and we had over a thousand responses with writing samples and and out of those a thousand you know samples we probably chose there were maybe three and it was the first time that I thought oh I I actually I actually have got something I you know and I really I really had thought for so many years that I was just in the right place at the right time I wrote the right book at the right time I've been very lucky um I now I, I now recognize that I have something that not everybody has, but that isn't enough. I, I also, by the way, think that there are millions of people who are enormously talented. And it is, it's the, it's the combination of talent, of hard work, of grit, um, of humility, um, or, and of, of drive, of real determination. I mean, you, you need a whole bunch of things. Um, to not necessarily to have a one-hit wonder because sometimes lightning strikes, but you need a whole bunch of things to have a career. Well, yeah, absolutely, and I, and I, you know, it's it's, you know, I was always brought up to be a very humble person. Like that is just one of those moral values that that is instilled to me. And and my wife, you know, likes to constantly remind me that I'm a human being. Now, I mean, not that I'm I'm any you know great anything but you know sometimes you get a positive review and i you know i share it with her and it's it, the feedback is you know don't get cocky about it and and she's ab- absolutely right and then there's a whole bunch of negative reviews that keep me grounded yeah but but you almost have to think about i mean we're what what is it we're trying to do we think that we are we are we've got such a great idea that we're going to write it down we're going to memorialize it and then other people are going to buy it like and it but but to me, like it takes a little bit of ego to say that you can do that, um, and and to believe that you can do that. You need a little bit of of an ego in there. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that question. It was merely just more well, of an observation. So I like the I like the just the general theme of the discussion because there are a couple of things that occur to me, and, and one of them is, you know, very often, especially when you have success out the gate as I did, you start to suffer from what I now call first novel syndrome, which is when you think, well, first of all, when you're surrounded by people, when you've, when you've suddenly got a number one bestseller and the whole world is telling you you're amazing and, and doing everything for you, it's very hard to have it not go to your head. But what a lot of people do is they refuse to listen to their editors. Um, and I see this a lot with younger people. And I've actually never, I, I've never had that thing. Um, I've always had people that I really trust. And if they tell me that a character's wrong or they don't like this, I've never thought, well, they're my words. You know, I, these are my characters. I created them. Who are you to tell me what to do? I mean, I've always listened to people. So that that kind of humility is really really important to to have good people around you that you actually listen to um but the other thing is i had an agent for a while who always used to say in this life you either are humble or you get humbled and i have to say in my 20-year career i i have definitely had a dip um or two and those those are very humbling just when you take it for granted and you feel like you're on top of the world all of a sudden, for whatever reason, your sales aren't what they were. Suddenly, people aren't paying you the same attention. And um, the first time that that happened, it was it was completely terrifying. But actually, what what it made me do was was pour all of my focus back into the writing because I, I realized, well, I can't control anything else. I I cannot control where my book gets to on the bestseller list or what the sales are. 
But what I can do is make sure that I write the best book that I can possibly write. So it, it really, I think I was very humbled by that and, and went back to, to really focusing on the book. Yeah, because I'm, I'm always interested to know from, from people who start off so high and then things dip. Um, I mean, is there any explanation for, for why the dip was there? And what did you learn about yourself during that process? I mean, I always think that, you know, conflict, like this is so cliche, conflict drives story forward. Um, what is what is the, the conflict that, that you experienced at that time that pushed you um, perhaps even above where you were before, you know, kind of a, a quote unquote downturn? Yeah, I think the conflict there was was really that you've had my entire professional life as an author. I'd been told that I was the best, you know, and I and I was I was when I went on tour, I was staying in the best hotels on the road, and and nothing was too much trouble. And it went from from that to suddenly, um, you know, I'm staying in. I don't know, Marriott's and, and you know, which are perfectly fine, but there's a very big gap between the, the Holiday Inn and the Four Seasons. Right. And, um, and, uh, and I, I think the conflict was in who I thought I, I had become and realizing that, that I wasn't in five minutes, everything, you can lose everything. It means it, you know, ultimately it, it, it's, it doesn't mean anything and you have to go back to basics and, and sort of question what's important and what's not. And, and realize that, that you cannot focus on, on the, the exterior things that, that, are supposed to tell you you're successful because once they're taken away, you're, you're then left with nothing. So it, there has to be something deeper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and you say kind of getting back to those basics, um, what, what are those basics for you? Like, what do you consider those basics to be? Well, for me, um, it's, it's story and, and character and, you know, and I still stumble at times, but I think, in my kind of novel, the, the characters are everything. Um, one of the things that I did last year, which I found transformative, was the McKee story course. Do you know about the McKee? I do not. So, so Robert McKee is is known as the sort of godfather of story. And traditionally, he was known as the godfather of screenwriting. And for years and years, he's held these workshops. And screenwriters go and sit in a room for three days, just listening to Robert McKee. He's also written a book called Story um, that's been around for ages. And it's all about what creates story. Um, and I had written a book, my next book, and I wasn't happy with it. And I saw an advert online for this course, which I, I knew about. And I thought, you know, I have no idea if it's even relevant for me as a novelist rather than a screenwriter, but I'm going to do it. So I went to New York and I did the McKee story course. I sat in a theater for three days and it was amazing because as I was saying earlier, you know, I became a writer. My, my, my craft was learned within the pages of books I was reading but I had never broken it down. And he breaks down character and story. And, and what I have ended up doing is rewriting the book that I wasn't happy with. But even then, I was still working with something that already existed. So I'm really looking forward to, to starting from scratch with the knowledge that I now have and the craft that I studied with him. Yeah, it's um, uh, amazing what what learning a little structure and theory, you know, can can do. I mean, as a, um, I I, uh, I I grew up playing the guitar, and I'm not not very good at all. I mean, it's just I, look, I'll never be Jimi Hendrix or Stevie Ray Vaughan for that matter. Um, but there's there's a difference between people who learn, you know, they they learn the instrument by by listening to other people play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was one of these guys who I would see people play i would listen to their style um i would try and teach myself some things um my playing became completely different when i actually started as an adult in my this was probably in my late 30s actually taking lessons from somebody who was an actual teacher who's then teaching a little bit about theory and why certain notes go together with other notes and and you know how to actually use the entire fretboard so it's, it's almost kind of like um 
to me, I, I don't know whether that thought kind of came into my head where, you know, you, you're learning from somebody who actually um, knows something about about it from a theory perspective. And then that kind of changes what you're kind yeah. of what you're doing. I, I actually find I'm a little bit teary at listening to that. I, I because it, it that resonates so much. It, it's I think there is a, a ceiling to how good you can get when you are self-taught. You can be wonderful. You can have enormous amounts of natural talent. But once you start intellectualizing it and actually learning the theory behind, learning the craft, it, it can take, it just takes you to a whole new level. Yeah. I, and actually, uh, I had another, uh, another person I spoke with who, um, uh, another guy in Connecticut, actually, he was a publisher and also a, a best-selling author. Yeah, he was really um, influential on, on some of my early stuff in the sense that he was really kind of forcing me to uh, create better outlines of, of stories. Um, so I would, I would sometimes start with just a really interesting character in mind and then kind of write as I go, which is a tremendously inefficient way of, of doing it because um, I had no idea where the story was going. So he introduces me to uh, a system that he used, um, and I figured, hey, he's a New York Times bestselling author. Maybe I could learn something from that. Um, and, uh, you know, just just having a simple framework, I mean, I, I don't want to consider it handcuffs because I, I never believe that an outline is, is a handcuff. But what, what's your take on that in terms of having an outline of a story before you actually go into the writing process? So for years, I, I didn't have an outline. I always, I, I always let my characters drive the story. I had an idea. I had a, a sort of a general arc of the story. I, I knew where I wanted it to end. But, but then I would let my characters drive it. But as I've got older, and now that I you know, have just finished my 20th novel, I now have come full circle back to outlines. And especially, you know, having done that McKee course, I now believe in outlines because otherwise what you can be left with, and and not necessarily, I mean, so I've, I've written some books without outlines like The Beach House, which is a, just a really strong book and the characters were really strong and it all just came together as I was writing it. And there is not a thing I would change about that book. But not every book writes itself. You know, there are some books that are incredibly easy to write and others that are enormously challenging. And with those ones, if you don't have an outline and you're relying on the characters, you end up with a tremendous amount of exposition, which does nothing. Just it, It's just puff. It's just filler. Um, and and that's always a tremendous problem. So I, I now... Um, um, I believe in the outline again. And in fact, what I what I didn't do with the book I've just finished, but what I will do with the next one is really, I think, take it scene by scene. Yeah. And, so, you know, and again, the Sunshine Sisters, which I know we're going to talk about yeah. later, but that is a book where, where I did, even though I didn't plot it, I was aware that every scene had to, there had to be a reason for every scene. Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like um, a screenwriting um, a screenwriting approach. If you when, when you when you start plotting out every scene, which I actually find to be difficult, I have a hard time. So I've tried to write screenplays, and um, for me, it's a completely different animal. I have, I have a very hard yeah, and I don't know why. Um, maybe I should take a screenwriting course, but no, I, I highly <laughs> recommend this one. But what's interesting, I think, in today's world of publishing, is that writing books isn't enough anymore. I mean, I, I do feel a lot of the time that I am working 10 times as hard as I did when I first started out for, for you know, a fraction of what I was paid when I first started out. And, and that is, that's publishing. You know, in, in, when I first started, all I had to do was write books. And there was no Tech, there was no social media. Yes, we had computers, but there, you know, we, uh, the web was just starting. Nobody really knew what to do with it. And now my job has become, yes, the hours of writing a day. Plus, you know, I have a hundred children and animals and a husband and I'm running a house and, and all these lives. Plus, 
I'm running an Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and I'm having to write novellas and blogs and short stories for other people because the promotion has all been handed back to the author. Um, and so my days are so busy and so filled. But, but the, what I was going to say about the screenwriting is, is the other thing is, you know, because it's becoming harder and harder to, to sustain yourself as a writer in these times, because book sales have suffered enormously. Um, I think that you have to, a, a sensible author who's, who's, you know, trying to make money and I'm supporting a family, you've got to think with every book, what, what's the potential for film and TV? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, these days, I'm never writing a book just as a book. I'm always thinking, could it work? Could it have legs as, as on screen? You know, in my experience, um, authors, especially today, we're really like small business owners. Um, and you know, I made, uh, I like to say I made the mistake of going to business school, but, um, if, if I were to go to business school, um, and, and like, and give a lecture, you know, I, I probably wouldn't do it as, cause I also own a, a marketing consulting company. I wouldn't do it, you know, from the perspective of a guy who's built a business doing marketing consulting. I would do it from the perspective of an author because, you know, you have to create a product. So you've got to actually create, you know. You've got to got to create this. Um, so you've got to create it. You've got to um, find a way to get uh, turned into a business. So find find a way to get it published, um, and that's either through the, the trade or you know if you the self publishing route. That's that. Um, then you've got to do all the marketing around it. You've got to actually create the cover. You've got to do the distribution. You've got to do all the promotion around it. Um, so you know for me, and then you've got to track sales and make sure you're getting paid. But for for me. You know, really is, you know, authors in this day and age, we're really small business owners and we've got to do everything. I mean, you've got to be active on social media. You've got to do blogging, um, you know, guest blogging spots. You've got to do stuff like this where you appear on some, you know, dopes podcast and, and talk about your uh, <laughs> your work. But it's, um, you know, a lot of it is pushed actually on the author now so that we're not just, you know, we can't just spend our time writing. We've got to spend our time, you know, probably more than half of it. Yeah. Doing everything else, definitely, and and I I love, I love that it, you are running a small business. You're and and you know in my case I'm one of the lucky ones because I I'm known as as one of the more successful brands in women's. You know I've been around long enough and had enough success that I'm seen as a brand. But that in itself is is a bigger business, and and you're so right. It, it's it's not just the social media. It is the overseeing everything because the other thing that's happened is is. First of all, the publishers don't put the same sort of, sort of money into anything that they used to. So when I first started, there were team, you had teams of people, teams of marketing people, teams of PRP who did everything for you and left you to write the book. And now, you know, even though you still have people and they still do things, there is so much that is generated by the author that if you were to just sit back and wait for other people to do it all, it just wouldn't get done. You would miss out on so much. And, and another thing is the publishers are still trying to figure out how to, how to do things effectively in this brave new world of the internet. And, and most of the publishers don't quite understand. They, they try, you know, they, they sort of do, everything's online now for starters. So they're trying to figure out which on, online promotions work, which don't, and nobody really knows because there isn't a formula that works. And so, you know, when, when a book suddenly hits and becomes huge, nobody quite understands why. Um, and, uh, you know, th- sometimes things catch of the zeitgeist, 50 shades of gray, you know, whatever it is. But the publishers can't then sit back and say, well, we did X, Y, and Z, and this worked for that. Therefore, it will work for, for this one. That isn't how it works. So they're just trying different things all the time. And some of them stick and some of them don't. Um, and it, it's these are scary times. No, I, I, absolutely, and and with all of the noise out there, I mean, if you if you go onto Amazon, and that's um, obviously the, the biggest place where people buy books online, um, you know, just look at what your competition is. It's not it's not other best selling authors. I mean, yes, it is, of course, other best selling authors with names, but there are literally millions of other things you're competing with there. 
Yeah, and you've also got a, a huge amount of, of Amazon published books that are selling for 99 cents that Amazon are able to push in a way that they will never push a book that comes from one of the main publishers. And so, you know, they're, whether they're on Kindle or whatever they are, they're selling, they, they have the ability to sell millions and millions of copies, which a twenty four ninety nine book just can't do. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it is, um, you know, and as a result, you know, publishers are, are scrambling. Um... They are. And, and that's, you know, I have to say, I thank my lucky stars every single day that I started when I did and that I've had the time to build a brand because, you know, I still have a recognizable name and, and that still carries weight. Um, but I would hate to be starting out in, in today's world. It's, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, and I know it's, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, from, from my perspective, it's, it's not easy. It's a lot of testing, um, and seeing what works. Um, but, uh, one of the things that I know you, um, we we were talking about before when we were talking about getting, getting back to basics and it's story, but it's also characters. Um, and, and you're certainly known for, for creating some, some memorable and, and wonderful characters. And one of the things that you, that you've said, um, in, in, is that, you know, when you're, when you're writing characters, it's almost like spending time with friends, um, when you're writing the book. And, and I'm really curious about that because, you know, oftentimes we actually have to write characters that, you know, we wouldn't really want to be their friend now, now, oh. would we? So. But, but you need to know them as well as you know a family member. And, and I, I often realize if I get stuck during the process of writing, if I reach a point where I just, I don't know what's happening, it is 95% of the time it's because I don't know my characters well enough. It's because I've rushed, because I've had the story to tell and I think I can just dive in and let the characters reveal themselves to me. But when I haven't done the work correctly, when I don't feel like I really, really know them, that's when I get stuck at some point during the writing process. Um, so I tend to make, you know, pages and pages of notes about my characters. I always base them on on a visual. Um, and often that's somebody that I know or somebody that I've seen a few times, but I will use somebody's look as a, as a jumping off point for it. So I can always call them to mind. Um, but yeah, it, the, the work of the character is, is everything. And you have some uh, very colorful characters in the Sunshine, uh, Sunshine Sisters. If I could say that word, right, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Um, where, where did the inspiration from this book come from? Um, cause I, 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 I mean, I love, uh, I love the story. Uh, I love the, the premise of it. Um, you know, and not all of our parents are, um, we have this ideal of like what the ideal mother is and what the ideal father is. And sometimes what, what you see, um, is not always what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- tell me a little bit more about kind of where, where this idea came from and, and what inspired you to write this over other stories that I'm sure are swimming around in your head. So um, the Sunshine Sisters is the story of um, a woman called Ronnie Sunshine, who is an actress who grew up in England, moved to Hollywood to make a name for herself, doesn't have a maternal bone in her body, but ends up getting married and having these three daughters. And she is a terrible mother. She is self-involved. She is, um, she's volatile. She has a terrible temper. um, And, and, She's enormously narcissistic. So these three girls grow up and we meet them first as babies and we follow them throughout the course of their lives. And they grow up walking on eggshells around their mother and then as adults estranged, not only from her, but but from one another as well. And then Ronnie is diagnosed with a terminal illness and she decides to call her three daughters back home to to be there at the end. And in fact, all of the girls, each of them are going through some kind of a transition in their life. Um, and, and so they come home and everything, of course, blows up in, in all kinds of unexpected ways once they come home. Um, the inspiration for the Sunshine Sisters. Well, the, the first inspiration was actually a, a, I think it was a self-published memoir, um, that I read about a, a woman whose mother had been diagnosed with ALS and her daughter went home to be her caregiver 
Um, and I think her mother wanted her daughter to help her take her own life. And I don't remember how it ended, but I do remember thinking, well, what a great premise for for a book. And and not just about the daughter, but about three three daughters. What if I made this less about a mother and a daughter and more about sisters, really, and family and what makes a family? And I will say that is a... A, re- a recurring theme in my novels is, is sort of family of choice. It's very much, um, most of my novels tend to feature characters who, for whatever reason, have difficult families and backgrounds. And, and as adults, their journey is really about finding peace and finding a, a family of choice. Um, and that's very much how the Sunshine Sisters came together. So, so sisters, um, and, uh, and then, the dysfunctional, the dysfunctional family. I'm not, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Okay, good. So, um, the the one of the things that I, I kept in mind throughout the writing of this book was the Philip Larkin poem, "This Be the Verse." And I'm I'm going to now quote from this if I can remember it because it's been a long time since I since I wrote this. Um, excuse me. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats, who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Now, I always say forget the last bit. However, that notion, they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they may not mean to, but they do. That that really drove the story behind the Sunshine Sisters. And, and you have, you know, you have a mother who did the best that she could with the knowledge that she had and yet completely screwed up her three daughters who in turn are doing the same things in their relationships and their own lives. So, so that was how the Sunshine Sisters came to be. It, I, but it, it, there, there's something just so, so beautiful in, in, in that story, though, um, in the sense of, uh, you know, they just kind of getting a chance to, to kind of come together again at the end. Well, I look, I, 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 I do try and have redemption in all of my books. They, they may not all necessarily have happy endings tied up with bows, but there, there is, there is redemption of some kind, and, and and peace of some kind. So, so you have these, these three girls who are kind of lost, um, when we first meet them and, and some of them behaving in terrible ways. I mean, there are affairs and, you know, or one of them's engaged to a man that she slowly realizes she hates. And, um, and, and one of them, the eldest one, actually, her, her defense method as a child to protect herself from her mother's rages was to, to build a, a, a figurative wall around herself. And now she, she has built a literal wall. I mean, she lives on a farm in the middle of nowhere and has very little to do with anyone until an unexpected relationship sort of draws her out of her shell. But, but I wanted to follow all of these girls who all appeared to in many ways have had everything. Um, and yet had, didn't have the the things that were that are really important as a child they didn't have unconditional love they didn't have support and care um and nurture and they had to figure it out for themselves and and they do that was the joy of writing it to to take these characters and to watch them figure it out do you find when you're when you're writing like that and you're really you know you really get into another world when you do that um, cause I find this happening to me where I, where I just lose track of time and, and my wife will tell me, I, I don't know where you are. Where are you? Why? It's two in the morning. Why are you not in bed? Yeah. Um, that's when, that's when, you know, you've got it right. That feeling. And, and that it went, when three hours feels like three minutes and you've been transported into another world, you know, you've got it right. Um, and that very, the sunshine system was, was very much that book for me. It was a book that just wrote itself. Those characters, each sister was so different and the mother was so strong. And and they really just, that story was, it was fun. I mean, I'd go to my office every day and I'd just sit there and I couldn't wait 
to to write and to see what was going to happen that day. Yeah, and you're and you're the only one who knows, you know, the story at that point. And uh, I'm sure it, it it causes a great deal of excitement within you, uh, and maybe a little anxiety when it's ready to share with the world, and hoping that everyone else uh, feels the same way as you do. Yeah, yeah. Although you know, as I say, with the Sunshine Sisters, I knew I knew I got it right. Um, but not, a, you know, not all books are like that. And a lot of my books have, have required much more work, you know, revisions and revisions and revisions. But, but the Sunshine Sisters, I knew, I knew when I sent it in that, that it was a good one. Yeah. So I, I always love to end these conversations with, um, advice. And uh, there's a lot of people who listen to this who are, uh, established writers, but also aspiring writers, um, themselves. So just thinking about those aspiring writers for a moment. What what advice would would uh, the very successful and talented Jane Green give to um, to those people who they have the dream they they have the dream that they want to make a living doing this What would you tell them I would say the most important um, thing is discipline actually I in fact what I usually say is it's you need a PhD you need persistence humility and discipline um, but discipline is everything you know when I was a journalist. I had an editor standing over me every day saying, Jane, we need a thousand words on on X in an hour. And I couldn't say, I'm so sorry, but I'm not in the mood today. I don't feel like it. Try me again tomorrow. I had to write a thousand words on whatever I was given because it was my job. And that's what I say to people. There are going to be days when a thousand words will take you 10 minutes, not quite, but it'll, it'll be nothing and it'll be easy. But there are going to be other days when you sit in front of your screen or your notepad and you think I've got nothing or the garden needs weeding or, or anything to get me out of this chair. And you can't. That what, what separates me from the other millions of enormously talented people who haven't published a book and want to is, is I have the discipline. I, I sit down and I will not get up again until the words are on the page. And how do you, how do you combat the temptation to go weed the garden? Or, or maybe I know you're a, 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 a chef to, uh, to actually start maybe making a meal. <laughs> how, do you come, how do you do it? Well, for, look, everyone is different. But for me, I carve out my mornings. Uh, I don't put anything in. And the, uh, I, am, I have terrible ADHD and I, I am the queen of distraction and procrastination. But I go to a little office, which is not inside my home. Um, and the most important thing for me, two things, I leave my phone in the car and I use an app called Freedom, which you buy at the Apple, at the, uh, Apple store. Um, and when you open up this app, it says, how many minutes of freedom would you like? And I type in 120 minutes. And what that means is for two hours, I cannot get online for love nor money. And that's how I do it. I sit in my office. What else am I going to do for two hours? I'm going to write. There's nothing else for me to do. Well, I love it. I love PhD. I, I, I love that. That uh, That's fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's how I've done it. And you've, and you've done it very well. Um, and I'm, I know all the, all the bestsellers and all the lists and records and books and print can, can certainly speak for themselves. So, uh, Jane, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me on Uncorking thank a Story. You, Michael. This has been wonderful. Thank okay. you. And I, I hope you have a great weekend and, and rest of your Friday. Okay. You too. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jane Green. If you want to learn more about Jane, visit janegreen.com. And to learn more about me and my books, please visit michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O, not an I. And to join my VIP mailing list where you will receive a free book, please visit michaelcarlinauthor.com slash VIP. So for all of us here at Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening. And until next time. <laughs>